shares an island in the Caribbean called Hispaniola with the Dominican Republic. To the northwest, its next-door neighbours are Cuba and Florida. To describe Haiti to his patrons, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain, Christopher Columbus crumpled a piece of parchment and placed it in front of them. As Haiti is an old Indian name meaning mountainous land, the country is a massive knot of mountain ranges, once lush with forests and vegetation, now stripped and exposed to erosion, storms and hurricanes. In the mid-18th century, Haiti became a French colony. The French imported African slave labour to cultivate their wealthy plantations. Then in the early years of the new century, the slaves revolted, and in 1804, Haiti became the Black Republic. Michael Dash of New York University tracks the implications to this day of that slave revolt. Yes, Haiti's isolation goes back, obviously goes back to the very beginning when, when in, um, in a world where there was slavery and there was um, enormous racism associated with it, Haiti's survival was a huge threat to all other um, colonial societies. So whether it was the US, whether it was France, whether it was England, etc., um, Haiti was very much considered to be a barbaric pariah state. And, and you have subsequently a huge amount of um, sort of imaginative energy which is put into turning Haiti into this barbaric state. And to this day, you ask anyone about Haiti, if they don't know where Haiti is, you know, they say Tahiti, um, they will start talking about AIDS, they will start talking about black magic and cannibalism, and it goes on and on like that. Now, all of that is, is entirely made up because there's very little um, with any one of those particular accusations to substantiate it. And, and if you, when you think about it, Haiti has to purchase recognition from the French. They have to, to pay the very planters from whom they very um, deservedly demanded freedom. So it, it, it is really a cruel, a cruel irony. And they, they never fully repay this debt until sometime in the 1940s. So this debt remains a huge um, source of instability in the country. The Vatican doesn't re recognize Haiti until um, 1860, which means that Haiti does not even benefit from missionaries, you know, missionary schools, all the things that go along with the, the normal development of a colonial, an ex-colonial um, country. So, I mean, it's a combination of this, this lack of recognition on the outside and this huge imaginative um, sort of cordon sanitaire that's put around Haiti that really leads to this very day to the isolation of Haiti. For almost three decades, Haiti was governed by the dictatorship of the Duvalier family, known to the world as Papadoc and Baby Doc. Their rule corresponded with the height of the Cold War. Papadoc, Francois Duvalier, who had his private police force, the Tonton Macoutes, was as paranoid as most Western leaders about the growth of communism. Jean-Marie Donny, or as he was known, Jean Mapou, a young idealistic teacher, believed that illiteracy was 
at the root of the poor's problems. With others, he began a movement to make Creole, used by the masses, rather than French, spoken by the elite, the official language of Haiti. One Sunday, following a Creole radio broadcast, Jean Mapou came face to face with the Tantan Makouts. The program started at 8 o'clock. I made the conclusion and I said, OK, ladies and gentlemen, I thank you very much and it was my, our program today. And I feel someone behind me and I turn my head and there is a guy standing there with a gun in my neck. He said, uh, OK, you finished now? And I'm shaking up because I know them. Those are the total of my coats, you know. And when I turn around, man, there were hundreds of them all over, on top, you know, in all those rooms. And those, some of them carrying rifles, some of them guns. And he looked at me and said, uh, you finished now? I said, yes, sir. He said, what's your name? I said, Jean Mapu. And he tied me up with other people, you know, there. And uh, they put us in a jeep and they left. Next thing I know, that I was dropped at uh, Fort Dimanche. We went in there. They put us all known. We moved everything, everything, well, shirt, pants, underwear. And then they put all of us lined up right in front of the wall. And they were yelling and screaming. They are calling us communists. They are calling us, you are a bunch of bombs. You are creating problems for the country, for the government. You know, you're on the radio every Sunday, you know, blasting the air, inciting people to revolt against the government. You're going to say it. That's the end of you now. Man, they were making all kind of threat. And so they put us in... Uh, that cell. When I got in there, I couldn't believe it. You know, it's you know a little square. Uh, that ten by ten, and uh, with uh, light, one hundred watt bulb, and uh, there is a little bucket in the middle, and I saw those guys. You know skinny, looking bad, dirty, and sick, all kind of disease on their, all kind of uh, skin disease. And I look at them, I say, guys, how long are you here? One year. How long are you here? Six months. And you, three months. I said, they never treat you, they never give you any medicine, nothing? No. I said, do we take a bath? You know, you look terrible. I said, well, once in a while, when they remember, and they give you two minutes to get the water, clean up, and get out. I said, what about that bucket here? Well, that's how, uh, that's where we do it. We pee there, we do everything here. And I said, do you get any visitors, any lawyer, any judge? He said, are you crazy, man? When you're here, that's it, that's your cell, you understand? You know, the reason, the minute you're here, you're dead. And you check in, you don't check out. 
I started crying. I started thinking about my mother, my father, my, my sister, all my friends. But I was confident. The reason I was confident because I feel that in my heart I didn't do anything wrong. I feel that, you know, I was not conspiring against the government, even though the Duvalier regime was bad. But I never talk about politics. We never talk about politics, only culture, only education. Maybe they just put us in a depot, like in a storage, and put us aside because maybe the movement was getting too much attention. And because of the communism, capitalism struggle going on in Haiti at that time, they said, hey, maybe that's it. You know, these guys, they are going too far. But I said to myself, you know, after they do an investigation, if they call me, I will tell them. And maybe they will understand and they will let me go. One month, two months, people started dying. There was a young guy, you know, he had a bunch of stuff coming out of his skin. And one morning he couldn't breathe and he died right there in the cell, man. And I started thinking. Then came that guy, I told you, that couldn't pee. And they drag him out, and I heard they were digging in the back, and I asked the guy, what's happening? I said, no, that's it. They are going to bury him like that because they're not going to take him to the hospital. It's, it's too late now. He's, he's a dead body even though he's still alive. But in all that, I kept my call, and maybe that's what saved my life. I kept my call. I kept on saying, God, you got to do something because I didn't do anything. On August 13, at noon, they opened the cell. I heard, we heard some steps in the hallway outside. And when you hear those steps, two things, either they come to get someone, nobody knows what they are going to do, or to get someone to kill. They opened the door. And here we go, we got a lieutenant and a tontomakot. He looks at everybody. And then he raised his head and he said, Who is Jean-Marie Wheeler Denis? I said, Me, ma'am. He said, Are you sure? I said, Yes, ma'am. And my heart stopped pumping. He said, come with me. I said, yes, sir. And I followed him. They closed the door. And he told the Totomakot, take this guy, go to the water there, and let him wash his face and clean himself. Then he left. He left me with the Totomakot. He gave me a piece of soap, and I went to the water. And as usual, when you go to that water, they give you two minutes. So I'm washing up. He said, he said, take your time. You're free, man. You're one of the luckiest ones in history. Someone, somehow, called the lieutenant and said to release you. I said, who is that? Who called the lieutenant? He said, maybe the president, because the president has the final word. He's the only one who can call and release you here. Nobody else. He said, take your time. Don't rush. I 
took a good bath for the first time. <laughs> IT, I want to welcome y'all to the West Indian Day Parade. This is my caravana, the PJs. Remix in crayon, let's go! Writer Edwige Danticard moved from Haiti to America during Jean-Claude Duvalier, Baby Doc's regime. I was born in Haiti in 1969 and my family moved to the United States when um, I was four. My, first my father, then my mother. They lived in Brooklyn for um, many years and I, I wasn't able to join them until I was 12 in 1981 when I moved to the United States. And um, 1981 was a, a very interesting crossroads for Haitians um, in New York, where, where I moved at the time, because it was a time when you had um, the first really large wave um, of people coming by boat to the United States, particularly to Miami. And you had on a very national scale images of um, bloated Haitian bodies washing up on the beach. Um, and I think it was for a lot of Americans the first time that they saw um, that there was something very pressing to fear and to flee in Haiti at the time, which was um, the the Jean-Claude Duvalier was um, president at the time, and it was uh, the Duvaliers had been in power, both his father and himself, for common com- you know at that point for about 20 years, and it was the beginning of the end of the dictatorship and a lot of pressure on um, on particularly poor Haitians economically and politically. So um, a great number of them were coming to Miami um, and dying at sea. And at the same time, um, people were just starting to hear for the first time about um, a disease that they then called GRID, which would later be called AIDS. And in the United States, there was a very... Um, trumpeted over and over that there was a, a short list of people who were particularly high risk and they, they listed, you know, they were homosexuals, hemophiliacs and um, IV drug users and then in that on that list they also added Haitians and Haitians were the only people who were listed um, in that grouping by nationality. So it was a particularly hard time. It was a I got this very dramatic sense of what it was like to be um, Haitian and living in the United States from the very um, day that I arrived. Just as Jean Mapou had sought to empower the people through literacy, Jean Dominique and his wife, Michelle Montaz, began a Creole language radio station, Radio Haiti. Well, we started, uh, um, actually, the beginning was not mine. The beginning was Jean's, my husband, uh, who set up that radio station. When Jean-Dominique started, uh, it was uh, in the early 70s. I was not in Haiti at the time. He started then uh, with a radio station that was uh, a commercial radio station. And uh, so it was, uh, he picked it up and bought it from the owner then. It was a radio station that was uh, mostly entertainment, and uh, mostly French-speaking. And uh, what Jean did was uh, to make out of it a radio station that was uh, uh, geared towards Haitian culture, Creole, Vodou, things that uh, then radio stations didn't talk about, the media didn't talk about, because uh, we have always had that uh, um, that form of uh, uh, double identity. Uh, the media was always reflecting the elite, uh, the elite that was essentially French-speaking and that was essentially Catholic. 
while the majority of the country has always been Creole speaking and has always been uh, vo- uh, you know, practicing Vodou. And uh, when I came back to Haiti uh, myself, two years later, he asked me if I would head the newsroom uh, because what he wanted to do was, uh, for the first time, to have the voices of the majority of the people of Haiti to be heard. And uh, this was something quite new for Haiti. And uh, I think it created a revolution. We were the only radio station doing it at the time and certainly the only commercial radio station involved with this type of uh, endeavor. And uh, Radio Haiti started broadcasting uh, uh, peasants talking about the price of coffee or broadcasting things uh, that concerned uh, uh, garbage in the streets and that concerned things that were uh, people's lives. Well, at the time, everything was controversial. You know, in the 1970s, you know, uh, when you talked about garbage in the street, you were talking politics. You were actually going against the the group in power, which was the Duvaliers, and at the time, anything was uh, considered uh, against the government. And I think uh, Radio Haiti became the symbol of the resistance of Haitians. So on November 28, 1980, it's a date that we have never forgotten, uh, the government sent the political police to Radio Haiti, and they completely, that one day, crushed the whole, uh, what they call the opposition, which was in fact all the independent press, all the uh, civil society groups uh, defending human rights, all the groups that were uh, uh, involved with uh, uh, free thinking and free speech. And uh, we were the only media uh, actually crushed and destroyed. In fact, uh, all our, st- our studios were completely destroyed. There was nothing left. And everyone present at Radio Haiti on November 28 was arrested. And the station was closed. Uh, that's when. That's how I uh, s- spend uh, a few days in jail, and uh, quite a few people at Radio Haiti spent uh, some of them up to a year in jail after that. Uh, five or six years, six days later, I was uh, expelled uh, to the U.S. Jean came and uh, joined me. And uh, that's when we started our first exile. We had nothing. We never thought that uh, there would be an end to that exile because uh, it looked like uh, Jean-Claude Duvalier had uh, um, really uh, comforted his uh, power in Haiti. And uh, we were very surprised when uh, we found out that uh, one November 28, five years later, there was a demonstration in Gonaïve. Then the government made a fatal mistake. Uh, four kids were killed. And from then on, people hit the street, and it really never, never stopped. And that's how Jean-Claude Duvalier was overthrown. Jean and I came back to, the, to Haiti shortly after that. And uh, Jean was just uh, welcomed as a hero. And uh, there were, what, 60,000 people at the airport who actually uh, uh, welcomed us and uh, practically carried our car from, I mean physically, lifting it from the airport to the old studios of Radio Haiti, which were uh, totally destroyed. There was nothing left. And uh, we gathered enough money, $60,000, and we rebuilt Radio Haiti. In 1990, a Catholic priest from the slums of Port-au-Prince, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, was elected by an overall majority of the Haitian people. Not since the heroes of the slave revolt, Toussaint Louverture and Dessalines, did the people, the poor in particular, so identify with a leader. 
one of the slogans used by Aristide when he first was elected in 1990. Um, that is, um, you know, all people are people because there was a system which is practically a kind of apartheid system which was... Um, instituted in Haiti between the people on the outside, which of course the peasantry and the elite, the people in the towns, the people um, the, 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 on, the, on the inside, which meant that there's a huge kind of disparagement of, of the peasantry. And as a result, you know, you have your twin cultures in Haiti, you have a peasant culture which has developed essentially in isolation from the towns, it's produced wonderful things, it's produced paintings, it's produced religion, it's produced a language, it's all kinds of, but it's produced this out of um, a kind of apartheid system, a kind of separation between state and nation. Now, the terrible story in Haiti, of course, is tied to the exploitation and the, dis the dislocation of the, of the Haitian peasantry. I think there must be in Haiti a sort of um, a fear of the poor because there's so many of them. I mean, there's much deep in the Haitian psyche or the Haitian, the Haitian sort of elite psyche or urban psyche, there's this idea that if ever this mass, and of course it may go back to history as well, because there was a time when the mass did rise up and change things forever, that one day you could be swept away in this sea of over 8 million people. It's a huge population. But what you have after 19, 1986 is the, um, the accumulation of the poor with less and less control over what goes on among the, the urban poor. And the person who, and to this day does, I think, um, who, who was the sort of voice of the urban poor was uh, Aristide, when it's Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And, and um, he was known as the prophet essentially because he was the one who in a totally, I have to say, rational way, defended the poor and um, sort of stood up for them. And of course, there's that spectacular incident where um, General Nofi sends the um, sort of goons out to get Aristide at St. John Bosco at his church. Um, and they enter the church during an actual service and the people all surround Aristide and protect him while, while you know, they're being hacked at by these, these people. Eventually the church is burnt and Aristide, it, you know, is turned into myth at that point. And almost nothing that he has done subsequently to undo that myth um, can really shake somewhere in people's head that this man did it because it, it is a rarity to have someone do this um, and to take such a heroic and courageous stand on their behalf because they're really considered to be pariahs. But just seven months after the election of Aristide, a military coup ended his presidency in 1991. In 1994, under the Clinton administration, Aristide was returned to power. But the coup had a huge effect on the president. Jean-Claude Serene had helped Aristide return to power. When Aristide came back, in 1994, and I must tell you that I personally was very much involved in the movement for him to come back because I was studying, I was doing master's degree studies in the States, and I wrote articles, I lobbied the American government for him to return. And I must say that my family, after our study, decided to return to Haiti because he 
was returned. And as soon as he resumed his presidency, he was clearly, he clearly had a change, either a change of mind or a change of philosophy, or probably he was the most deceitful person that, that ever existed because he reneged on every every single promise or every single everything that made him a unique leader he was very um, pro-poor in, in his writing and um, he, he had a vow of poverty himself he made a vow of chastity he was very anti-American anti-colonialist anti-American he was very anti-bourgeois and he was very noirist noirist meaning that he, he is black he was talking to, we were talking about black power that we are black etc etc now the man had a total reverse of all that everything if you take his stance against poverty he became one of the richest people in the hemisphere. Hemisphere. He became a millionaire himself. He married an American woman with um, not black. The guy was always talking about black, white, etc. And he kept talking about that. He was also very anti-corruption. His government became one of the most corrupted governments that we have ever had. They had all kinds of schemes to embezzle um, government money, the state money. And also, in terms, of, in terms of democracy, his government had the most brutal policies that we have ever seen before. So, so when that happened, you, you, you started to see a shift from his um, support. Uh, not only first it started among the intellectual, but it continued. It continued and it uh, went too deeper to part of the masses. Father Jean-Yves Urfi, a Haitian-based French priest, was once a friend of Aristide. Money. Money, money is a cancer. When you uh, join power and money, you get the perfect killer. Because he, he realized that money comes from power and power gives money. So he became so rich, you know. You should visit his house in Tabar. Swimming pool huge parking lot for 100 cars, you know. I raised a question to him at a point where we were ready to, to break our relationship. And I told him, do you realize what the people say outside about your swimming pool? You know, and he answered, oh, I invite the kids from uh, La Famille C'est La Vie to swim in the pool. And I said, yes, once a year with the TV cameras. Then he, he threw the, the issue of my paper on the desk. 
And he said, don't you see you are making, look, making me look like a demagogue? And I answered, is it not what you are? And that was it. That was the end of our relationship. In Haiti, a president is not allowed to be elected for consecutive terms. So in 1995, Aristide gave way to President Prival, but was again elected with a huge majority in 2000. Now Aristide was relying more and more on his own private army of Shamir, gangs from the slums that he armed and paid. In that same year, tragedy came to Radio Haiti and Michel Montaz. Jean was uh, uh, more and more, I think the, the, the station became more and more uh, uh, essentially covering um, things, what we call the invisible country, covering more and more the, the, the countryside, the majority of Haitians, which we felt were really uh, put aside in the whole process. Uh, Jean was fighting a lot for uh, uh, the fact that uh, uh, that majority should participate in elections. That majority should have a word in choosing their own uh, representative locally, choosing judges, choosing, you know, and being able to have a say in their own affairs. Uh, Jean uh, had become really the symbol of the real fight, which was the fight coming from down below. Uh, but it meant going against an elite that controlled coffee, that controlled all the productions of Haiti. And uh, that was one element, I think, that probably led to what happened. Um, another element is that uh, Jean had been denouncing corruption within uh, the Aristide government. Uh, this was before René Préval came into power. And Jean was pretty straightforward because he felt that uh, uh, we had contributed to put uh, Aristide in power in a way uh, by uh, uh, supporting, by being so much part of that democratic movement. And Jean felt that, uh, uh, that things should not get back to what they used to be. We should not be using uh, the same uh, uh, you know, corruption and the same uh, uh, way of, uh, of thinking that led uh, Haiti into what Haiti had become after two centuries of independence. In 2000, Jean had been fighting on a number of fronts. He had editorials on a daily basis. And uh, one morning, it was uh, April 3rd, 2000, 6 o'clock in the morning, Jean usually left home a little earlier than I did. Uh, we were co-anchoring the morning program, and um, we used to go down separately, one at 6 o'clock, the other one at 15 past 6, or something of that sort. And I went down, and that morning I was listening to the radio, which was a cradle program from 6 to 7, and I heard my announcer saying that um, we could not continue the program and that uh, we would be back on the air. I called the station then and uh, they told me, Michel, come immediately. They didn't tell me what it was about. Took my car, went down to the station and uh, I saw the police in front of the station 
When I walked into the courtyard, Jean was unconscious. The pool of blood around him. And uh, all I know is that he never talked to me. He was... Uh, I found out afterwards that... Uh, the four bullets he had received were all killers. I mean, there was no way he could have escaped. Uh, the people who came in to shoot at him were uh, definitely professionals. We found out later it was $60,000, that uh, US dollars, that they were paid for that. Um, the contract was for two. I was to be killed also. Unfortunately, the person who was killed was uh, a young um, security guard at the station who was killed when he entered the station while Jean was uh, being attacked. Jean's uh, assassination really had crushed Haiti. The country really stopped functioning for a week. No one, nothing worked. Uh, even the, the, when I asked the, 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 the police chief, I said... Why didn't you? Why didn't you stop uh, uh, the uh, the assassins? Why didn't you do something? He said, "But Michel, they killed my friend," and the whole country was like this, you know, completely um, because it was unthinkable that they could kill Jean Dominique. They could kill other people, but Jean had become such a huge symbol of what we had been trying to build in that country. And when I see what's happening right now, I tell myself. If then the right steps had been taken to pursue his killers, we wouldn't be in the situation we are in right now. Because what um, was what strikes me is that we have had so many unpunished crimes that they have really paved the way to what we are living today: the kidnappings, the death, the uh, rapes. Everything that is hated today that makes people back into what we used to have, fear. People are afraid to talk, afraid to go out in the streets, afraid to participate in any form of civic life because they feel that it, is, it has become once more too dangerous. In February 2004, following a spate of public rioting and an incursion of ex-military from the Dominican Republic, the US, France and Canada helped oust Aristide from power and install an interim, unelected government. The peace was to be kept by the UN forces. Father Gérard Jean Just is a priest and a member of the Lavalas party and a key supporter of Aristide. Lavalas refuses to be involved in the elections planned for this autumn. Father Jean Just's church is in St. Clair's, situated in one of the many poor areas in Port-au-Prince. Ah, bien, 
February 29, we had the kidnapping of a legal president, Democratic President Jean-Bertrand Aristide, and democracy has been stabbed, but not dead. There is a, an elite group, a so-called elite group, that used the students at a certain time, paying them, offering them visa, and then uh, to the embassies, to the embassies particularly France, Canada, and U.S., and uh, they managed to lie a lot about Aristide, and then uh, a, with uh, a silent uh, uh, insurgent crossing from Dominican Republic, and uh, with the backup of the U.S., Canada, and France, they managed to give a kidnapping to President Aristide, and then since that time, the country is ungovernable. Traditionally, the rich, and they had the army, and they had uh, some racist American, as we have good American and some racist one, and usually the Republican back up the uh, so-called elite against the Haitian people because they give the big businesses the U.S. business is great advantages on the back of the poor. And then that's the reason why they don't like Aristide and they try to set a, a de facto government, an illegal government, up, upon us. Uh, I belong to the Lavalas Party and uh, we believe in election, but if the conditions are not met, we're not going to think of going to election. As you see, all the other parties, they're coming together, they cannot even register for months. They cannot register 500,000 people. And if we decide to go to election, we'll register 4 million people immediately. So that's show the force where it is. Though the shadow of Aristide now lies ominously over Haiti, with daily kidnappings, rapes and murders carried out by pro-Aristide gangs and countered by the police forces' indiscriminate shoot-to-kill campaign in the slums, Father Urfi argues that the fundamental problem has not been solved. We're living in the civil rights From the time the morning sun comes up justice if you go to the streets, you, you, it's so obvious that there is a, a huge uh, segment of the population living in abject poverty. That problem is still there. Even if Aristide dies, the problem will still be here. So, but the, the Haitians are not a, a violent people in general. I'm not talking of the, the bandits we have now uh, spreading insecurity, but 99% of the Haitians are not violent. And in another country, nobody would accept to get one or two dollars a day and to live in a 
house which is made of, of cotton uh, and uh, no water, no, no sinks, no, no streets because it's just mud. I mean, the, the conditions of life are really the worst in America. So, Aristide or not Aristide, we still have those conditions to solve. Just stay.